The National Museum of Funeral History presents The Final Curtain Never Closes. I'm your host, Genevieve Keeney Vasquez, the president and CEO of the museum. We couldn't think of a better guest uh, to highlight the holiday in the month of February is President's Day. So today I am honored to have a very distinguished guest with me. It's Mr. Bob Bedeker Sr., who has been a funeral director for 59 years. But most importantly, in those 59 years, his career has taken him to many different um, opportunities and experiences. And one of them is being the funeral director to some of our nation's presidents. I'd like to welcome our chairman of the National Museum of Funeral History, Mr. Bedeker. Welcome. Well, thank you, Genevieve. Pleasure being here. Thank you. So I come to understand you've been in the industry for 59 years. That's a long time. It is. It really started back when I was in high school. And our class advisor gave us an aptitude test, which said that I excel in real estate, test pilot, and a funeral director. I thought, well, boy, that's kind of cool. So my class advisor took me to the local mortuary, which was real small in Carlsbad, California. And I thought, this is pretty neat. So when I graduated and went back up to Los Angeles, I went to every single funeral home in town, and nobody would hire me because I had no experience, none. So I started to get disappointed. And at the very last funeral home I went to, the, the owner of it said, well, there's a company down the street called Abbott and Hast. And it's a mortuary accommodation service. And what they do is rent out hearses, limousines, flower cars. Uh, if a funeral director needs pallbearers, needs a death certificate run, that's what they do. So my first duty was to go make a removal at somebody's house. And that person made a real big mess. So I came back to the funeral home, and of course, thinking about it, I made myself sick. And uh, I called my parents and said, this isn't for me. So they came down that night, which I wasn't expecting. And they sat in the lobby, and my dad said, well, here's something else that we can add to the list of things that you never accomplished, or you dropped out halfway through. And he really made me mad. So the dispatcher came walking in, and he had a slip of paper, and I said, what do you got? And he said, well, we have a removal, but I'm not going to give it to you. I'll give it to somebody else. And I said, oh, no. I said, that's so mad at my dad. I said, I'll take it. And that's been 59 years. Wow, what an amazing story. So if my parents hadn't come down, I don't know what I'd be doing today. Well, and I'm glad that they did come down because, you know, to be, you know, truth be told, you are quite an amazing funeral director. Um, you have quite a, a, a long resume of the amount of people that you have helped, not only the deceased, but the, the loved ones they left behind as well. Um, and, I, and I can't help to say that some of these experiences that you have had have, has actually led to the creation of many of the exhibits that we have here at the museum. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And so one of those being our presidential exhibit here at the National Museum of Funeral History. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about how that exhibit came to be? I was very fortunate 
to have participated in three state funerals and uh, four first lady funerals. And it was just a good match for our museum so that the American people really know what our rituals are and how we bury a U.S. president. Each country has their own. Uh, We have a papal exhibit, and we go back 2,000 years of rituals to bury a pope. Well, our country isn't quite that old, but we have at least 200 years of rituals that are involved in a state funeral. And I just felt that uh, the guests that come in here would probably like to see this. So we started off, of course, very small, and then we have uh, built up from there. And we have quite a bit of memorabilia. So I know our memorabilia goes all the way back to George Washington, who is our first president. So we can easily say that every president who has died to date is currently featured in our exhibit. Is that correct? Well, well, we have something on almost all of them, yes. Yes, and that, yeah. that's pretty amazing from the headline news to the replica of the train that uh, carried the body of Abraham Lincoln. And then, of course, our most recent exhibit, which I think is probably one of your proudest exhibits, is the one honoring George H.W. Bush and First Lady. That is quite an extensive exhibit. Because George Bush had so many moving pieces to his funeral. And um, so we were able to acquire some military uniforms that were used for his funeral. The family minister, Dr. Levinson, we have his vestments that he wore all through the uh, funeral. And uh, we have... Items that the grandchildren had left on a bus, which was their cue cards that when they stood up to read a psalm, they had it all down on a piece of paper, and uh, we had found them. So they're on display, and uh, a story about President and Mrs. Bush of them as a couple, and then we start to break it out on Barbara Bush's funeral, because she died first. And then, of course, President Bush's. But we also have other presidential memorabilia in there and artifacts. You can also call it memorabilia, artifacts. And uh, some were given to us, some we have bought. We have an exact replica, and there's only two in existence, of Abraham Lincoln's coffin. And there's a whole story in behind that, that when it came back to the White House, Mrs. Lincoln who wasn't meant mentally all there, Yes, didn't like it because it was all black, a black fabric coffin. So she sent it back to the coffin maker, and he added silver stars. He added fringe, all kinds of stuff to it. And then she was happy because he was lying in repose at the White House. So that's where it first went. We also have... JFK's eternal flame from his gravesite. About every uh, 10 years or so, Arlington National Cemetery changes it out. And where the flame comes out underneath, there's spark plugs. Oh. So as the gas is coming up, the spark plugs are constantly firing, always keeping the flame 
Lit uh, 24-7, rain or shine or snow. Right. Wow. So when they changed it out many years ago, we were very, very lucky to have received it. On the back of George Bush's train car, there was a presidential seal that lit up. Well, we were able to get that seal. So now that's on display in his, and uh, but that was the actual one that was on the train. And as I said earlier, many military, uh, we have their uniforms. One is Alvy Powell, who is or was the soloist at Gerald Ford's funeral. He also sang at the Bush funeral. And I understand we have General Swan's uniform. He was the escort to the First Lady. Right. So all First Ladies uh, get an escort during the state funeral? Yes. And it's usually the commanding general of the Military District of Washington. They're in charge of all of the ceremonies that a president is involved in in Washington, D.C., Plus, their other job is to defend Washington, D.C. So it's called the Military District of Washington, which involves inaugurations, um, a ceremony at the Unknown Soldier. So any types of ceremony in Washington, D.C. is under the jurisdiction, including state funerals for a sitting president, a former president, first families, a sitting House member, a sitting senator, that falls under the military district of Washington. So they, so it's safe to say they're the ones that orchestrated or plan a lot of the uh, funeral in the in the state of Washington for these dignitaries and our presidents. Right, and outside too. Depends of where that the president lives. So once that the military takes hold of the handles of the casket, that part of the funeral falls under the military district of Washington. Wow, I didn't even realize that. That's pretty interesting. Interesting right. concept that there's this. This whole uh, organization that's responsible for all of the ceremonies that take place in our nation. That's, that's impressive. Well, there's years of practicing and there's years of planning. Yes, I, I can only imagine because if you, if you, I'm sure many of you that are listening have seen one of the presidential funerals on television. You may have seen Mr. Bedeker at that funeral doing his duties diligently, but you could see there's so many moving parts that that has to have uh, extreme planning involved in order for it to all go down so effortlessly as we see it on television. But I am sure that there are so many people involved and there's so many behind the scenes um, that we do not see. And I think that it's fortunate that that we are able to get a little bit of that insight from you. So I appreciate that. Well, we have uh, uh, involved, you have the government, you have the military, you have the Secret Service. At the local level, you have the fire department, the local police involved. You have the family, you know, that has an input. Also the library of the former president. Because that's where they usually go to get buried? Which, uh, yes, to answer your question, but that, again, is up to the family and up to the library if that is what is going to happen. But uh, in the last 50 years, most of the former presidents are buried at their library. 
So that's actually a wonderful educational opportunity for families to take their kids to the libraries of these past presidents and at the same time uh, be able to see where they're actually buried. So, I, I, you know, if people didn't realize that, I think that's uh, really good working knowledge moving forward for planning a trip. Well, in going to a presidential library, take Gerald Ford. I didn't know really anything about Gerald Ford until I went to his museum. And I spent a few hours just going from exhibit to exhibit and reading. He really did a lot. And it's a shame he's getting most of the credit now after he died than when he was alive. Well, I think that's with with many people, unfortunately, in our history, they, their, their notoriety comes posthumously. Uh, I remember visiting the Bush Library. Uh, and that was quite fascinating. I learned so much about the Bushes and, and, and you know, the, the parties that they hold and the, the wonderful gifts that they're given by heads of states and or countries. So, yeah, there's a lot to learn in these libraries. But coming back to our museum and the things that can be learned, you know, here in ours is basically how our nation uh, learns of the death of the president and or the, the leader of our nation, whether one— He's in office or has already completed his term. He still gets a state funeral, and his announcement is, I think, still as impactful. They're entitled to a state funeral. It doesn't mean that they're going to get one because it's entirely up to them. Richard Nixon did not have a state funeral. He did not choose to come back to Washington, D.C. or be honored that way. He was honored at his library. But he did not come back. But he is the only one in the last 50 years that probably did not have one. So for our listeners that might not really understand what a state funeral is, can you go a little bit more? The state funeral means that they their, their body goes to the state of Washington and lies in state, correct? Well, the actual state funeral from the American people is the 30-minute service in the rotunda in Washington, D.C. That is the official state funeral. Now, all of the other pieces you have seen on the different state funerals that they go to the National Cathedral for a service, that's extra. That was up to the family. That's what they wanted to do. And going to the different monuments, Reagan was at the ellipse when they changed his casket from the hearse to the caisson. But then Gerald Ford just drove past the World War II monument and stopped there for uh, uh, a brief moment so Mrs. Ford could greet people. George Bush went right straight to the Capitol. So of the... Different rituals that we have were different than many other countries because I've heard different countries will call the military district of Washington. Can we do this? Can we do that? What they're doing is copying us. Oh, interesting. So they have something to learn from us. Yeah, but that's not part of their heritage. Or their culture. Or their culture. So the different components that really make up everything that encompasses a state funeral. We first put our flags at half staff, draping the flag over the casket, which many, many other countries do. 
but lying in repose. That is when a president is having a visitation normally with a closed casket, maybe at their library, maybe at the White House. It's entirely up to them. But the term repose is what you use in that. Only when they go into the rotunda do they say or do you say they're lying in state. So many funeral homes today, when you go in to see your neighbor that has just passed away, that Frank Jones is lying in state. Frank Jones is lying in repose. I think that's very interesting that that kind of line goes in line with the coffin and casket. You know, there is a right. true difference in in distinguishing uh, those specific terms, um, but people don't realize that that there are specific definitions to those terms and when they are to be used. Correct. Yeah, that's 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 some really great working knowledge moving forward for I think not only myself but listeners as well, knowing the difference of lying in state, lying in repose. So it's just in the rotunda. That's that's is, li- is lying in state, and hail to the chief and ruffles and flourishes. Anytime a sitting president makes an entrance somewhere, they always play hail to the chief. That's the official song for the president of the United States. Same thing as when they're having a funeral. Every time his casket makes an entrance at an event site, they will play Hail to the Chief with ruffles and flourishes, which are uh, drums and bugles. Also the caisson. Ronald Reagan was on a caisson. And for people who don't know what a caisson is, can we describe it? It's a 19th century ammunition cart. That's what it was used and I believe it was a 70-millimeter cannon that the caisson pulled. So this was during the Civil War. And the caisson that is being used now at Arlington National Cemetery and on state funerals, the cannon is gone or the gun is gone, and there's a bed on it now. It's, and it's pulled by six horses. And each one has their own job. Again, this is up to the family. Ronald Reagan used a caisson. Gerald Ford and George Bush did not. So the caisson is just basically the, the kind of like the flat-bedded cart Correct. pulled by the six horses versus Correct. a horse-drawn hearse. And they're mainly used in Arlington National Cemetery. And depending of your rank in the military is when you uh, are allowed to use one or you are not allowed to use one. I understand that we have uh, one of the funeral homes here locally in Houston by the Houston uh, National Cemetery here for the veterans. There, There is also a case on that can be used for our local veterans, correct? correct? Yes. Correct. And there's different police agencies around the country that have them too. Very interesting. But the ones at Arlington that the use are made by the Amish, they're all handmade. They're wow. beautiful. Well, you know, we were talking about the caisson, and in our um, presidential exhibit, we we actually have one of those horses that uh, was very significant to one of the funerals, Blackjack, correct? Correct. Blackjack was really the second horse. Abraham Lincoln's horse, which was, uh, I think, named after me, Old Bob, but his horse that he always rode, was the very first 
riderless horse. The technical name for the horse is a Camp Parison horse, which will, means they'll never be ridden again. And um, the very first one was Blackjack. And Blackjack uh, was used in JFK's and many other state funerals. After Blackjack died, he's buried at Fort Myer. Then another horse, which was a racehorse that had been retired, was called All Aboard Jewels. And he paid his dues. And now his name is Sergeant York, named after a Medal of Honor recipient. So the ones that you see, the one that you see now, mm-hmm. that's Sergeant York. Sergeant York, and so and these horses, you can you can find them at Arlington National Cemetery, correct? or or on a state funeral. It has a sword uh, along the side of the saddle, but one of and it has the boots in the stirrups, but one of the boots is backwards, which means as the president is looking back on his troops and saying goodbye. Wow. That just gave me goosebumps. Uh, so the next time you see a state funeral, look for look the Camp for, Harrison horse. Look for the horse. Camp Harrison horse, otherwise known as the riderless horse. Correct. Correct. And it's usually follows right behind the caisson. The caisson. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. And uh, there are also some other rituals that we do, uh, which is a lying in state in our U.S. Capitol. And we have had quite a few of the presidents, starting with Lincoln, lie in state in the U.S. Capitol. Some civilians, and I believe that it's been three, I could be wrong, have also had that honor. So you really have to have done something to have that happen. But Lincoln, Garfield, Grant, McKinley, Harding, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, uh, and Bush are the ones. And they've been on the what they call the Lincoln Beer when Abraham Lincoln died, just out of wood, they made a casket beer. And for people that are listening that don't know what a beer is, can you explain that? That is the wooden platform that the casket sits on. And then they have it draped in a fabric. So every time a president uses it, then they put on a all-new fabric. But that's the same beer that they use for Abraham Lincoln. Wow, so they keep And that's a- another ritual that our country does. Wow. Again, some little-known facts that we didn't know about. And then we have the 21-gun cannon salute. Again, when the president makes an entrance, they usually use uh, cannons, either a 75-millimeter or 105-millimeter. And that started almost 200 years ago. As well as the missing man formation, you see the 21 planes sometimes, sometimes it's four But when they fly over, then one will break off and go straight up. That was a custom that started really in England for the Red Baron. And when the Red Baron got shot down and got killed, then his fellow aviators came up with this. And in 1938 is when the U.S. adopted it. So now we have the missing man formation. You know, if I can go back real quick to the 21 uh, cannon salute, I know we have an exhibit for Gerald Ford, mm-hmm. and we actually have one of the cases that holding some of those cannon shell boxes from those 21 cannon salutes. So that, that's what you're referring to. Right. 
Yeah, that's pretty pretty significant that we actually have the boxes. There's over 80 shells that have been fired during a state funeral. And that's because every time Air Force One ascends and descends? No. no? Uh, it's every time the president makes an entrance. An entrance into? To, uh, it could be the National Cathedral. It could be uh, at the graveside. It could be uh, almost anywhere is when they do that. Wow. And uh, then the three volleys that are fired over the grave, if you go to a funeral of a veteran, you'll see that. And most of the time, it's 21, but it's three volleys. And during the, during the, the Napoleonic Wars, as the fighting was going on and it was time to clear the dead off the battlefield, they, they would fire, fire three volleys. And then the other side would fire three volleys, and they would quit shooting. They'd go out and get their dead. Then they would take their dead off the battlefield, and then they would fire three volleys and start shooting each other again. Wow. So that's where the three volleys came from. And we still continue that tradition today. We still continue it today. And then TAPS, which is at the very end of the graveside service, it's only 21 notes. But it's probably 21 of the most powerful notes that you will ever hear. So in 1862, it was written by General Daniel Butterfield. And he wanted to replace Tattoo, which is the bugle call for everybody to go to bed. He didn't like it. So he came up with taps. And he found a bugler that could play it. It shifted away then from Tattoo of a sound that when you go to bed to a funeral. And that's where that it it came from. And, and I have to say that's probably one of the most moving songs that I could, if you could call it a song, it's it's one of the most moving melodies I, I have ever experienced. And I don't care how many times I hear it, I can still cry every time I hear it because I understand what it means and I understand the depth of it that somebody has died. Yeah. Wow. It's it's pretty a powerful melody. Uh, if you have not heard it, I recommend that you go and, and listen to Taps, um, but understanding that it truly is a significant melody for those who have passed away. So our state funerals, to recap it a little bit, everything is ritual. But the family now can pick and choose what that they want to do. That's so. What that's they good usually to know that they do have some say. So, yes. Yeah. But usually, it has to do with what church are we going to go to? Is it their own personal church, National Cathedral? Do they want to go back to Washington D.C.? Do they want the case on? All of those things is what they usually make a decision about. So coming back to our museum uh, and all of those amazing uh, rituals, many of them can be seen throughout some of our exhibits. Out of all of the exhibits we currently have in the presidential, do you have a favorite? We have a 2003 hearse that was used in California for President Reagan and President Ford. So once that car was used for President Ford, then it was donated to us from Service Corporation International. 
and we now have it. So were you ever in that hearse? Uh, I drove it both times. Drove it both times. Wow. That's that's pretty So I know that car pretty well. <laughs> so I know that President Bush had a funeral train. I actually remember standing on the side of the tracks waiting for the train to go by. And it was such a moving experience. Can you tell us a little history about the trains that the presidents have used and why the trains? Well, with George Bush, he was the last one so far to have had a presidential train. But the first one started back in 1865, which was Abraham Lincoln, when he was assassinated. But that was a normal form of transportation. So that train went 1,600 miles to go from Washington, D.C. to Springfield. Then the next presidential train was Garfield in 1881, who was also assassinated. Grant in 1885, William McKinley was assassinated in 1901, Harding of 1923, Roosevelt 1945, Eisenhower 1969. Then there was a 30-year pause. There weren't any funeral trains until George Bush. And the reason why that George Bush wanted a funeral train, he wanted the American people to be involved in his funeral because most of the events uh, at the National Cathedral and, and then wherever were by invitation only. But the American people didn't have a chance to participate. And the same thing with all of the other presidents. They published when the train would be coming by. And people would stand out there all night long. And in the older days, in the 1800s, they would line the train tracks with flowers. They'd have gifts. And it was a real big deal. When the train came by for just a second, just a blur, they were able to see the casket of the president as it went on to its next stop. George Bush, his train only went 70 miles, and it took two and a half hours. But when he opened up his presidential library, Union Pacific had a train engine called the 4141. And they had some cars on it, and everybody went from Houston up to the opening of his exhibit. Then when President Bush died, they brought back 4141 and the train cars. And what's the significance of 4141? He was the 41st president of the United States. Wow, okay. And the train is painted the same colors as Air Force One with a presidential seal on it. Uh, It's now on display up there. That's what I was going to ask. Where is that train? Can can I go today and see that train? Can I get on that train? I don't know if you can get on it, but it's there. But there's another historical piece to George Bush's train. And what is that? They wanted the engineer and the conductor to be Navy veterans. Well, the engineer turned out to be, her name was June Noble. And we have her uniform on display uh, at the museum. She's the very first female train engineer to ever drive a presidential funeral train. Wow. That's impressive. So she made history. She sure did. And we have her uniform that she wore that day. And we have the key to the train. Uh, It's called a reverser knob. And she would push it in to make the train go forward, pull it back, uh, to put it in reverse. And they casted a special one for this run. 
and she gave it to us. And and uh, I believe didn't they make a special car for President Bush to be placed so that it was kind of like you, we could actually see was it was it glass on both sides or was it open? I really don't recall because it, it went by so quickly. It was plexiglass on each side. It was a and I was lucky enough to have seen it. It was a baggage car. And then they took the doors off and put in plexiglass. They put in lighting inside so that you could see them. And then, of course, the whole outside was wrapped with the American flag. And there was a soldier standing there at the foot of his casket the entire Correct. time. Correct. During the journey. Correct. And, and then George W. Bush was in the car right behind his father. Wow. With his family. And it's interesting that you say that that he they re out outfitted a baggage car because we also hear in the museum have in our veterans exhibit uh, a baggage car painted green or actually it's a baggage cart cart yes uh, painted green so is this kind of like a little bit of uh, uh, tradition or custom from that piece that we we have in history of that when the soldiers died on the battlefield and their remains were removed for the train, they were only to be used, they were only to be carried on that specific baggage cart? No, that that baggage cart, back in the early 40s, 50s, and 60s, human remains were transported, New York, Chicago, just wherever, on a train. And those baggage carts were on the loading dock and the casket would go inside of a redwood box, which we have on top of ours to protect it. And I remember as an apprentice back in the early sixties, when I would come to work every night, I had to make a run to the train station and those baggage carts were uh, there. And then you could, that you would have to pick it up because you're alone this heavy wooden box, and then uh, slide it on. But they were used uh, at the train station mainly. But yes, many veterans that died were put on one of those carts to be loaded or unloaded off of a train. So that you were right, yes. So many amazing tie-ins to history that you don't know until you start uh, doing the research or, or or listening to a podcast, the things that you can learn. I mean, me just sitting here, I, I know I'm the president of the National Museum of Funeral History. I work here. I work right along with you, Bob, on so many things. And I have to say, I actually learned things that I did not know historically, and I found it fascinating. And I find you fascinating, uh, your career and it's just, it's truly amazing what you have accomplished in your lifetime to say that you are the funeral director to the presidents. And I'm so honored to have you with us today as a guest. Is there anything else that you would like to say or any closing statements? Well, I'd just like to invite the listeners out there. You need to come in if you haven't been to our museum. It's 30,500 square feet, and we have so many items that you will never see again. And that is one of the main reasons why we opened up the museum was Bob Waltrip, who was the founder, really felt that many of these items in funeral service were disappearing and wanted to preserve it. And when guests come in, the most common 
words is, I remember that. Look at that. Because so many of them, their grandparents went through it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, but no, uh, it's just an honor to be here and, and to be a part of the museum for the last 33 years. And I appreciate you inviting me. Well, I couldn't think of a better guest to commemorate President's Day. So if you are seeking something to do, definitely look up the National Museum of Funeral History at www.nmfh.org for our hours and our prices. Thank you, Mr. Bedeker, for being here. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on this podcast. And I hope that you will share this episode and our future episodes with family and friends. We look forward to any feedback you have to offer by giving us a review on Apple or Spotify. And we hope that you will join us for a virtual tour at www.nmfh.org. And always remember, any day above ground is a good one.